Welcome back to Hemingway List, the podcast. What? Uh, we're talking about Book 6, Chapter 26. Andre's father continues to object strongly to his engagement with Natasha. Maya suggests that this is because the old prince wants a more aristocratic and wealthy marriage for Andre. But earlier in the chapter, Tolstoy writes of the prince's vexation with his son's faint-heartedness. That line surprised me because I don't see anything faint-hearted in Andre's actions. What do you all make of the line and of the prince's objection to the marriage in general? <coughs> um, also, Maya is torn between two paths, to stay with her verbally abusive father or to assume the life of a travelling ascetic Neither seems to have much to offer in the way of comfort, though she feels drawn to both and seems to genuinely find both appealing in their own way. What do you think an ideal outcome for Maya's story would be? Her um, fascination, flirtation with this idea of living the nomad life, <clears throat> going on a pilgrimage, is really interesting. I, f I just feel like that's one of those things that... Um, I don't really understand it, but I do feel like it's a key to who she truly, truly is. If you if you were to learn who she truly, truly was, then that would make absolute sense. The the whole nomad thing. Um, you know that you know that feeling when you learn something about someone and you're like, I don't know what that means, but I feel like it really is at the core of who you are. And I don't even know if she truly would actually want to do it. You know. Would she want to be a pilgrim? I don't know. It's hard to say if it would be the life she'd enjoy, or if it's just a it's it's just romanticized. It's highly romanticized to her because it is wrapped up in her religion and freedom and uh, kind of I don't know what's the word. It's so I don't know. I guess she sees it as wholesome. I love peanut butter. 69, what a name, says this. It seems to me like Andre's father thinks of human emotions as weaknesses. Wow. When you say it like that. Um, does he? I don't know. I can see how he's got no time for, you know, people to be overly sentimental or wishy-washy. But um, when you say it like that, that's pretty, that's pretty fun. I'm going to kind of keep that in mind as I read on and see... Is that the case? Does he see other people's emotions as weaknesses? Um, so I think he just can't go get over the fact that his own son would succumb to such a weakness as falling in love with a young girl. Well, yeah, that makes sense, actually, when you say it like that. Um, he just wants to prevent the marriage as long as he can because he, I think he truly believes that Andre will just get over it and realise for himself that the whole thing with Natasha is a silly mistake. I loved how he said, like, you know, do it. Do it later when I'm dead. He doesn't care. Once he's dead, you can do whatever you want. So he's just... I think it's almost like him... To him, it's like embarrassing, maybe. It's painful to read through Maya's struggle with her father, to be honest. Says, I love peanut butter 69. I'm rooting so hard for her to be happy for once. I just hope that her father could change his attitude towards her soon. Aestheticism, in this context, sounds like something that seems like a valid and good path for Maya, only because of her cure, her current frustratingly tragic position. It seems like something someone like Maya would fantasise about, but would never actually do. 
Um, Warren Kovacic says, how about when Andre gets back from Switzerland, he gives Maya a damn vacation? Yeah, that's an idea. She needs it. Oh, and maybe actually raise his own son for a change. Andre is lucky that his sister basically worships the ground he walks on and actually embraces this challenging and exhausting existence of hers. As far as old Bolkonsky's distaste for Andre's engagement, I think he views it as folly, mostly because Natasha is so young compared to Andre. And also because the Rostovs aren't as resourceful as a family as the Bolkonskys, although they still seem to live a lavish lifestyle, in my opinion. Uh, as much as the life of a wanderer appeals to Maya, I can't see her leaving. She's devoted to her father, even more so than her, even more so her nephew. I think she adores Andre most of all, and I think his disapproval might be the thing that she dreads most. And Ryan Dundev says, late to this one, it seems that old Bolkonski has a lot of pain inside him that he can't deal with. That's an acute observation. I'd say you're probably right. Uh, whatever happened with his marriage and his career has left him devastated and he reacts with an obsessive need to control everything around him. If that is disturbed, he reacts terribly. Maybe he sees his son setting himself up to be hurt by allowing himself to be vulnerable in falling in love and desperately tries to stop that from happening. You get the sense, now that you say that, you know, that he has a lot of pain inside of him and he can't deal with it and whatever happened with his marriage and career... And it just makes me think of him as a young man. What would have old man Bolkonski been like? And I actually think he would have been a great man, you know, probably quite severe still, but you can imagine him young, you know, with a sense of humor, without all this uh, whatever trauma in him. And you imagine if there was a prequel, you know, a War and Peace prequel, um, with old man Bolkonski as a young man, Bolkonski. You imagine he'd be, I don't know, probably quite like Andre in a lot of ways. And, you know, who knows, he might have even been like young Nicholas Rostov. You know, playful, silly, uh, yeah, whimsical, all these things. It's nice to imagine, uh, well, even beyond fiction, it's nice to imagine people who you've never known as anything other than an old person try to picture them young you know it's one of the tragic things about life isn't it so when you die you are you know remembered as whatever you were when you died in a lot of ways i i feel um and it's so sad isn't it because that's usually not us at our best often i mean it's not often it's not always us at our worst but you, you know what i mean people tend to um that people's lives become painful when they become older. It's hard to be at your best when you're in pain. Um, we're cutting deep today, but I guess, you know, this is what happens when you get to the end of a book. Kind of reflect on the whole, you know, book six and Maya's musings about um, running away and, and whatnot kind of just... Kind of, I don't know what's... It's almost like a summary, isn't it, of everything we've seen. Not a summary, but like a reaction to everything we've seen. Maybe it's a better way to say it. I am excited. We're up to, what are we up to? Book 7, Chapter 1. Book 7 is called 1810 to 1811. So, how 
far forward have we jumped? Let me just see when book six was set. 1808 to 1810. Okay, so we're taking off from there. That Book six has taken place over two years. And now we're starting at that, at the end of that, at 1810 through to 1811. <coughs> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> All right. Oh, God. That's a bit of a longie. All right, let's get stuck into this. Book seven, chapter one. As I'm saying this, I'm starting to feel like I'm about to get the hiccups. You know that feeling you get when you're about to get the hiccups? So I really hope that doesn't happen right now. That would suck. Okay. The Bible legend tells us that the absence of labor, idleness, was a condition of the first man's blessedness before the fall. Fallen man has retained a love of idleness, but the curse weighs on the race, not only because we have to seek our bread in the sweat of our brows, but because our moral nature is such that we cannot be both idle and at ease. An inner voice tells us we are in the wrong if we are idle. If man could find a state in which he felt that, though idle, he was fulfilling his duty, he would have found one of the conditions of man's primitive blessedness. And such a state of obligatory and irreproachable idleness is the lot of a whole class, the military. The chief attraction of military service has consisted, and will consist, in this compulsory and irreproachable idleness. Nicholas Rostov experienced this blissful condition to the full when, after 1807, he continued to serve in the Pavlograd Regiment, in which he already commanded the squadron he had taken over from Denisov. Rostov had become a bluff, good-natured fellow, whom his Moscow acquaintances would have considered rather bad form, but who was liked and respected by his comrades, subordinates and superiors, and was well contented with his life. Of late, in 1809, he found his letters from home more frequent complaints from his mother that their affairs were failing falling, sorry, into greater and greater disorder, and that it was time for him to come back to gladden and comfort his old parents. Reading these letters, Nicholas felt a dread of their wanting to take him away from surroundings in which, protected from all the entanglements of life, he was living so calmly and quietly. He felt that sooner or later he would have to re-enter that whirlpool of life with its embarrassments and affairs to be straightened out, its accounts with stewards, quarrels and intrigues, its ties, societies, and with Sonia's love and his promise to her. It was all dreadfully difficult and complicated, and he replied to his mother in cold, formal letters in French, beginning, My dear mamma, and ending, Your obedient son, which said nothing of when he would return. In 1810 he received letters from his parents in which they told him of Natasha's engagement to Bolkonsky and that the wedding would be in a year's time because the old prince made difficulties. This letter grieved and mortified Nicholas. In the first place, he was sorry that Natasha, for whom he cared more than anyone else in the family, should be lost to the home. And secondly, from his hussar point of view, he regretted not to have been there to show that fellow Bolkonsky that connection with him was no such great honour after all, and that if he loved Natasha, he might dispense with permission from his dotard father. For a moment, he hesitated whether he should not apply for leave in order to see Natasha before she was married. But then came the manoeuvres and considerations about Sonia and about the confusion of their affairs, and Nicholas again put it off. But 
In the spring of that year, he received a letter from his mother written without his father's knowledge, and that letter persuaded him to return. She wrote that if he did not come and take matters in hand, their whole property would be sold by auction, and they would all have to go begging. The Count was so weak, and trusted Matenka so much, and was so good-natured that everybody took advantage of him, and things were going from bad to worse. For God's sake, I implore you, come at once if you do not wish to make me and the whole family wretched, wrote the Countess. This letter touched Nicholas. He had that common sense of a matter-of-fact man, which showed him what he ought to do. The right thing now was, if not to retire from the service, at any rate, to go home on leave. Why he had to go, he did not know. But after his after-dinner nap, he gave orders to saddle Mars, an extremely vicious grey stallion that had not been ridden for a long time, and when he returned with the horse all in a lather, he informed Lavrushka, Denisov's servant, who had remained with him, excuse me, <clears throat> and his comrades, who turned up in the evening, that he was applying for leave and was going home. Difficult and strange as it was for him to reflect that he would go away without having heard from the staff, and this interested him extremely, whether he was promoted to the captaincy or would receive the Order of St. Anne for the last manoeuvres, Strange as it was to think that he would go away without having sold his three roans to the Polish Count Golokowski, who was bargaining for the horse Rostov had betted he would sell for 2,000 rubles. Incomprehensible as it seemed that the ball the hussars were giving in honour of the Polish Mademoiselle Przezyskia, out of rivalry to the Uhlans, who had given one in honour of their Polish Mademoiselle Borozowska, would take place without him. He knew he must go away from this good, bright world to somewhere where everything was stupid and confused. A week later, he obtained his leave. His hussar comrades, not only those of his own regiment, but the whole brigade, gave Rostov a dinner to which the subscription was 15 rubles a head and at which there were two bands and two choirs of singers. Rostov danced the trepak with Major Basov, the tipsy officers tossed, embraced, and dropped Rostov. The soldiers of the third squadron tossed him to and shouted hurrah, and then they put him in his sleigh and escorted him as far as the first post station. During the first half of the journey from Kremenchug to Kiev, all Rostov's thoughts, as is usual in such cases, were behind him with the squadron. But when he had gone more than halfway, he began to forget his three roans and Dozhoyevsko... His quartermaster, and to wonder anxiously things, how things would be at Otradnoe, and what he would find there. Thoughts of home grew stronger the nearer he approached it, far stronger, as though his feeling, this feeling of his, was subject to the law by which the force of attraction is in inverse proportion to the square of the distance. At the last post station before Otradnoe, he gave the driver a three-rouble tip, and on arriving he ran breathlessly like a boy up the steps of his home. After the rapture of meeting, and after that odd feeling of unsatisfied expectation, the feeling that everything is just the same, so why did I hurry? Nicholas began to settle down in his old home world. His father and mother were much the same, only a little older. What was new in them was a certain uneasiness and occasional discord, which there used not to be, and which, as Nicholas soon found out, was due to the bad state of their affairs. Sonia was nearly twenty, she had stopped growing prettier, and promised nothing more than she was already. But that was enough. She exhaled happiness and love from, from the time Nicholas returned, and the faithful, unalterable love of this girl had a gladdening effect on him. 
Petra and Natasha surprised Nicholas most. Petra was a big, handsome boy of 13, merry, witty, and mischievous, with a voice that was already breaking. As for Natasha, for a long while, Nicholas wondered and laughed whenever he looked at her. You're not the same at all, he said. How? Am I uglier? On the contrary, but what dignity, a princess, he whispered to her. Yes, 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 cried Natasha, joyfully. She told him about her romance with Prince Andre and of his visit to Otrodnoe and showed him his last letter. Well, are you glad? Natasha asked. I am so tranquil and happy now. Very glad, answered Nicholas. He is an excellent fellow. And are you very much in love? How shall I put it? replied Natasha. I was in love with Boris, with my teacher and with Denisov, but this is quite different. I feel at peace and settled. I know that no better man than he exists, and I am calm and contented now, not at all as before. Nicholas expressed his disapproval of the postponement of the marriage for a year, but Natasha attacked her brother with exasperation, proving to him that it could not be otherwise, and it would be a bad thing to enter a family against the father's will, and that she herself wished it so. You don't at all understand, she said. Nicholas was silent and agreed with her. Her brother often wondered, as he looked at her, she did not seem at all like a girl in love and parted from her affianced husband. She was even tempered and calm, and she was even tempered and calm and quite as cheerful as of old. This amazed Nicholas and even made him regard Bolkonsky's courtship sceptically. He could not believe that her fate was sealed, especially as he had not seen her with Prince Andre. It always seemed to him that there was something not quite right about this intended marriage. Why this delay? Why no betrothal, he thought. Once, when he had touched on this topic with his mother, he discovered to his surprise and somewhat to his satisfaction that in the depth of her soul she too had doubts about this marriage. You see, he writes, said she, showing her son a letter of Prince Andre's, with that latent grudge a mother always has in regard to her daughter's future married happiness. He writes that he won't come before December. What could be keeping him? Illness, probably. His health is very delicate. Don't tell Natasha, and don't attach importance to her being so bright. That's because she's living through the last of her girlhood. But I know what she is like every time we receive a letter from him. However, God grant that everything turns out well. She always ended with these words. He is an excellent man. All right, there we go. He's an excellent man. <laughs> That's so um, typical. I do that, you know, when, you, when you're talking crap about someone and slamming him, and you always got to end with, oh, he's a great guy, though, like, you know. Yeah, sure, he might suck massively, but hey, no offense, like, he's a great dude. <laughs> oh, dear. All right, have your say about that one on the subreddit. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you tomorrow.